thanks for tuning in to this message from Greenhouse Church. We are continuing our series on the book of Acts. Listen now as Pastor Mike continues his teaching on the movement. I am about to preach one of my very favorite passages in the entire Bible. Like this is one of the most influential chapters of the Bible for me personally. And I hope today that you're going to get the essence of what Luke was writing when he wrote the book of Acts. We're doing this series that's called The Movement. And I really want you to see, if you've ever heard someone describe like a book of Acts vision, when you ask me what kind of vision do we have for our church, I would tell you that we want our church to be a book of Acts kind of church. Specifically, though, I'm talking about this chapter. So this is a very, very pivotal chapter to me. Acts 11, starting verse 19. If you're ready, say, preach, preacher. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who, when they had come to Antioch, they spoke to the Hellenists or the Greeks, preaching the Lord Jesus. This means they branched outside of their, their religious, ethnic group that they felt comfortable with. And the hand of the Lord was with them. And I'll be honest, my prayer today is I want the hand of the Lord to be with us. When you go out this week to your job, I want the hand of the Lord to be with you. By the way, you don't announce that. Other people observe that. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. For he was a good man. He, he by the way, gave a word, something like Elder Murray gave a word today. That's, that's what Barney was getting up doing, right? He was full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. He remembered there was this guy named Saul that had supposedly started following the Messiah. And something clicks in his mind that he needed to find Saul. And when he found him in verse 26, he brought him to Antioch. And so it was for a whole year they assembled with the church, and they taught a great many people. And the disciples, now disciples are people who follow Jesus. Now the disciples, disciples were people who followed a rabbi. There would be a rabbi, rabbis had disciples. The flip side of the equation of a disciple is a rabbi. It's, it's, a, it's more than a teacher or a professor. It's, it's someone that you're trying to become just like. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. All I want to talk about today is this. What is a Christian? What is a Christian? Let's pray. Jesus, help. The word Christian itself came from this chapter that we're reading. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So it really is asking and really raising the question, what is, what is a Christian? Like, what is a Christian? And what's happened to the title, phrase, label, Christian, that when someone hears that, that label, it's like if you've ever gone somewhere and they, they give you these little labels and they say, okay, the, the label that we're going to give you guys is the word Christian. In Antioch, something happened to a group of Jewish followers of the Messiah, the Mashiach, the, the Christos. The, something happened with them that, that they got a new name. Their label was called Christians. 
Well, 30 years ago last month was when, if you're a Gator fan, do we have any Florida Gator fans in the house? 30 years ago last month is when the Florida field, Ben Hill Griffin Stadium, got a new name that some of the administration tried to resist, but it was, it was given by uh, one of the greatest Gators there's ever been, which is Steve Spurrier. And Steve Spurrier, there was a, a, a set of things that were going on, just talking about labels here. There, there was a guy that was labeling him an offensive genius for what he had done at Duke. He had been this offensive genius. And he says, listen, listen, I don't, I don't really like to... I, don't, I feel uncomfortable with you labeling me an offensive genius. They're like, well, what would you like us to say? He said, why don't you just call me a mastermind? <laughs> he said, I, I like the title mastermind better. So he was a guy that would come up with labels. He called Florida State Free Shoes University. He gave them that very appropriate label. But maybe more to the point in Gainesville, Florida, if you live here, he is the one that labeled Ben Hill Griffin Stadium. Anyone know what he called it 30 years ago? The Swamp. Guess why he called it The Swamp. Because the swamp is the place where only gators get out alive. If you're watching in some other country or something like that, welcome to enlightenment. Only gators, <laughs> only gators get out alive is the idea. Because what he said he was doing was he was using this label to, to signify a change of culture. In fact, the first couple years that he was the coach, the gators never lost a game, a, a home game. That's when I was in college, right? So I, I was in college when... When, when he was there and, and watching this change of culture because the name, the title itself was doing something. And by the way, we, we, we like to choose titles for ourselves. You see this in people's social media all the time. Someone says, I'm a gamer. You know, I'm, a, I'm an active. Everyone, everyone loves to be an active. I'm an, I'm an activist. I'm a gamer. I'm a foodie. I'm, a, I'm an athlete. I'm a gym rat. Like there's all these titles that people tend to give themselves. The question I have is, what does it tell you when somebody else gives you a title? In fact, let me maybe ask a more penetrating question. If people that knew you and watched you and heard you and saw the trend of your life, what label would they stick on your shirt? Because in Antioch, the, the disciples didn't call themselves Christians. The Bible's even kind of clear. It's like, don't, don't, don't boast about yourself. Let another man praise you and not your own self. I'm, I'm just one of those people. No, what would other people say? Because in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. It is both humbling and revealing when other people label you. What... Are other people labeling us Christians in our setting right now, in our world right now? Well, I can tell you, when I was in Pakistan, if you use the word Christian, in Pakistan, the idea of a Christian, if you went to the Christian part of Islamabad, if you went to the, uh, the Christian part of Peshawar, if you went to the Christian part, Christians are the people that are sexually immoral, that sleep with people that they're not married to, that go to clubs and get drunk and do drugs. Christians are sexually immoral boozers. That's what a Christian means in some parts of the world. In fact, in a lot of Muslim countries, if you've ever told them, hey, would you like to become a Christian? What that has often meant in many places has been, oh, Christians are the very immoral ones. Of course, that's a little different. There's a different stigma when you come to America, even in, in, in recent times when we've had, um, you know, whether it's elections or political, uh, philosophical drama that goes on. And when we hear words like Christian or maybe evangelical Christian, when you're reading the books like Jesus and John Wayne or whatever, the idea of Christian often connotes for people 
things like someone that's gun-toting or someone that's militaristic or someone that's like, you know what, you just got to go smash mouth. You got to stand up for yourself kind of stuff. If someone's like, well, when you think of a Christian, what do you think of? They might think of like militarism or they think of something like nationalism and, and things like that. When you're talking to Gen Z, what you often hear many people around um, that are, have not tried church or many people that are in the culture that we're living in, the city that many of us are living in here, when you say, would you, like, like one woman that I heard about that when she was in a pit of despair that had made many, many mistakes and someone said, why don't you go to church to find some help? And she said, church with Christians? That's the last place I would go. I already feel horrible about myself. Go with Christians? I'll feel even worse. What is a Christian? Because I kind of want the word back. Do you? What is a Christian? Well, the word Christian comes from the word Christ, okay? The, the, the root word is Christ, and, and that's the word that comes from Greek, which is Christos. Now, the Greek word Christos is a word, and you can just put that up there, this, this word Christos, it's, that's the Greek word, that the Hebrew word is Mashiach. So, so Jesus would technically be Yeshua HaMashiach. The idea, idea would be Jesus is, it's, it's Yeshua, Jesus, like Joshua, the Messiah, the Mashiach. Uh, a Mashiach, the, uh, a Christ, was technically an anointed one. Now, in Hebrew, in Jewish culture, the, an anointed one would be someone that gets anointed. Now, specifically, the anointing would be like oil. When a, when a priest, but specifically when a king was anointed, they would take oil and they would pour the oil over him. That's why you may remember, if you've ever read the story of David, when Saul was trying to kill him, but God had told David, I'm anointing you. And so the, the prophet came and poured oil over David's head so that he was dripping with oil, signifying this is the anointed one, the king. And yet Saul was still the king. And so when his men said, why don't you go take out Saul? He said, I won't. How can I lift my hand against God's anointed? In other words, God had already anointed him. And even if I've been anointed, he is the, he is the anointed one. He is the Christ. He is the Mashiach. In fact, David himself would be described in scripture as the Mashiach. He would be described as an anointed one. The one on whom the oil had been poured, oil in scripture, frequently, regularly represents the spirit of God. The judges would, when you got a guy like Samson who was not even very godly, and yet the spirit of God, when he, as long as it was there, would rush upon him. He was the anointed one. These, these were the saviors, the, the messiahs. David was described as a messiah, as a Mashiach. The idea was... That one day there's gonna we we need a Messiah that's not gonna go kill Uriah's wife. We need a Messiah that's not gonna go do what Samson does. We need a Messiah that's not gonna let us down. There's something in every human heart, if they only knew it, they're longing for a Christ. You might be like, I'm not. No, you are, trust me. At the deepest level of your soul, you long for a political figure, leader, Messiah, Christos, that's not gonna let you down. The great news is that there is one. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is the description. Christ is his label that is given to him to describe what he does. He is the Mashiach. He is that one. A Christian then, and here it is. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who recognizes that Jesus is 
the Christ. A Christ was an anointed king that came to bring the rule and reign of God to deliver God's people. A Christian is the person who recognizes and submits to the kingship of Jesus. That is a Christian. I want to get super clear on this. A Christian is not an American. A Christian is not an El Salvadorian. A Christian is not a political affiliation. A Christian is not a religious preference. A Christian, at least the way it's actually written in the original, a Christian is a person that when you watched how they lived, you're like, ah, looks like Christ. And when you listen to what they said, you'd say it sounds like Christ. In their life and in their proclamation, they point to Jesus. Look at him. And today, with all of my heart, I want to say to you, look at him. <laughs> Amen. Oh, I love Jesus. There's no one like Jesus. The, what, what is a Christian? A Christian is a person who looks and sounds, who, who lives and points and follows and loves Jesus. It's a person that acknowledges the kingship of Jesus, that there is one, one king above all the kings. There's a lot of kings. There's only one king of kings. There's a lot of lords. There is only one lord of lords, and his name is Jesus. Amen. His name is Jesus. So what, what's the big idea? Today? It's simply this. When the word Christian is the same thing as disciple, that's when we go change the world. The disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. We kind of need to reverse it now. We need Christians to be called disciples again. I mean, that, that's almost what we have to do now. When Christian equals disciple, we go change the world. So that's the call. Let's go change the world. Well, there's one guy in particular that seemed to do this very well. He keeps on popping up like a weird player in the book of Acts whose name is Barnabas. Barney seems to be the embodiment of this of this Christian ethic, this Christian vibe, this Christian lifestyle. What is it that he does? And I just want to kind of point out with these three paragraphs that we've just read what Barnabas does because Barnabas goes and turns the world upside down. How did Barnabas contribute toward getting the name Christian attached to disciple into his life? Let's going to look at a couple things here. Number one, uh, first thing we see in verse 19, it says, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose, they were preaching to no one but the Jews only. But now it says some people from Cyprus, and by the way, Barnabas was from Cyprus, so they're, they're describing one person in particular, that you're like, oh, it's him. This guy just keeps on popping up, this little hero of sorts in the book of Acts, Barnabas. They began in Antioch to say, hey, we're not just preaching to Jews, we're, we're taking this outside of that. We're going we're gonna to take this outside. What, what these Christians did, what Barnabas did, is number one, they chose to be more defined by the culture of heaven than their cultures of earth. Now, I want to get real careful here because I do not need my Puerto Rican wife to stop being Puerto Rican. She will be Puerto Rican in heaven. In heaven, there's every race, every tongue, every tribe, every culture. I do not believe we all blend it. The, the kingdom of heaven is not like a mushy soup. It's like a crunchy salad, okay? Salads are wonderful when they're full of all the stuff that they bring. I don't need my Puerto Rican wife to become anything other than fully her, but I need you to understand this. The, the kingdom of Jesus has got a trump. Oh, her, she's, trust me, she's Puerto Rican, Okay? And I love her Puerto Rican self, all right? But I have to tell you that, let me, let me say it to you like Tony, Tony Evans, when one of the first sermons I ever heard when I became a Christian. I was in Sled Hall, Murphy area. 
on the University of Florida campus, and I would listen to Tony Evans every night. He would preach on the radio. And I would sit there, and I'm like, this is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. You're like, how come I've never heard preachers like this? Well, I had never been saved. You know, it's weird. When you start hearing preaching after you know Jesus, preaching sounds a lot better. <laughs> it's really wild. And I would sit there and take notes. I heard him say this 30 years ago. I'm going to repeat it to you now. Tony Evans says, he was talking about like um, when we're coming to our Christianity. He says, it's technically incorrect to call yourself a black Christian, a white Christian, a Hispanic Christian, because then you make your color or culture an adjective. And it is the job of an adjective to modify the noun. If you put Christianity in the noun position and your color or your culture or your politics in the adjective position, you have to keep shaping the noun so it looks like the adjective that describes it. So if your color or culture or politics are in the adjectival position, you get to keep shaping your Christianity to look like whatever that stuff is. What you need to do is put your Christianity at that adjectival position so that your culture, your politics, whatever, gets modified by your Jesus, not your Jesus by the other stuff. Now, what you will hear some people say is stop being your culture. No, keep being your culture, but modify you by him. Don't try to modify him by you. Amen. This is, the, this is the beauty. This is where these early believers, they're like, wait a minute. They're, they're, God told us to go preach the gospel to everyone, and they were only going to people of their own race. Ray, I mean, I want you to catch this. We are now in Acts chapter 11, and in Acts 11, there is still an ethnocentric, nationalistic racism taking place in the church. We've got a church where the spirit of God is being poured out, the sick are being healed, the dead are being raised, the lost are being found, and they are still being bound by the blind spots of their culture. I just, I, know, I want that to be humbling because that means it's very possible to have a lot of things right and you're still getting things wrong. That's why sometimes when you see someone struggling in some area, you need not judge and think that all of their life must be evil because this area of their life makes the rest of it uh, ridiculous. That's not always the case because sometimes what has to happen is we need to choose to be more defined by the culture of heaven than the culture of earth. And guys, in Greenhouse, the dream is that we bring our cultures, the dream is that we bring our personalities, we bring our gender, we bring all that we are, all of all that we are, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it, and we submit it and surrender it to the lordship and the kingship because a Christian is someone that says, he's the king, he's the Mashiach, he's the Christ. And we bow, watch, we don't get rid of it, we don't obliterate, he doesn't obliterate your personality. He redeems your personality. He doesn't obliterate your culture. He redeems your culture. He doesn't obliterate your past. He redeems your past. Choose to be more defined by the culture of heaven. And I love what it says in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Oh, I love this. Jesus, please do this with us. And the hand of the Lord was with them. Is Trudy in here right now? Did I see Trudy in here? Trudy, how are you feeling? Trudy, being prayed for, can I just say it? Being prayed for, for cancer and just walking through the valley of the shadow. Jesus healed her. Jesus healed her. That is the hand. Do you acknowledge that was the hand of the Lord? Praised all the glory to God, right? And I want to get, get real clear here, okay? Let's, let me kind of break this down theologically because I often hear people really kind of missing something. There is a theology called the omnipresence of God. God is everywhere. Do we all know this? 
God is a, we, we don't, we're not doing the Greek gods, the Greek, you know, like the Greek gods of Olympus where, where you know, they were limited. We have an unlimited God. The Greek gods, the, the gods of the ages, of, everyone's always believed in God. They just believe they were limited. What we know is there's only one and he is unlimited. He is without bounds. You could go to Arizona, he's there. The bottom of the Grand Canyon, he's there. You go to Taj Mahal, he's there. Any of the seven wonders of the world, he's not wondering. He's the wonder, right? Okay. So when we come to the omnipresence, I hear people say sometimes, well, God is everywhere. Well, he is everywhere. But what do we mean by the hand of the Lord is with him? So we're not describing the omnipresence of the Lord that God is everywhere. We're also not describing the faithfulness of Jesus when he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. In fact, let me give you some good news. Even when you left him, he never left you. Even when you were unfaithful, he's always been faithful. He will always, you're like, I don't feel him. Yeah, but he feels you. I don't see him. He sees you. I don't hear him. He hears you. And trust me, when you're dying in a fire and the smoke is everywhere, it doesn't matter if you can see the fireman. The question is, can the fireman get to you? He, what, what this is describing, though, is not, it's not the omnipresence of God, and it is not even the stabilizing security that God is a rock and a refuge and a fortress and a strong tower. It's not even that. What it's describing, the hand would, and in this week, I spent way too much even, I would look at every single passage in the Bible that describes the hand of God. <laughs> It ended up not applying to the sermon, but it was a very fascinating study. But let me just suffice it to say, the hand of God represents and stands for the manifested, visceral, active, in the real world, manifested presence and power and help of God. That's what, when, when God's hand is against you, like when in the book of Ruth, when, when uh, you know, Naomi, she's like, oh, the hand of God is against me. The idea is that God, it's the activity of God. There, there's this idea that even many Christians struggle with, which is that God's the great watchmaker, that he designed, he's the creator, and he wound the whole thing up and he's let it go. Well, the hand of God is reminding you, he is not the passive observer that's watching things play out with a watch that he began billions of years ago. He is the active, not just creator, but sustainer and miracle worker in the midst of lives that are open to him. The hand of God means you need to know when you pray, God answers prayer. God cares about your business. God is interested in your teenager that came home at 4 o'clock in the morning. God is inst intimately um, interested in that pain that you feel on your side and you're wondering if it's the same tumor that someone else had. God cares about those lesions that they found. God is interested in what's going on at your job. The hand of the Lord is ready to move on behalf of those who will trust him as the Christ and Messiah, not just in theory, but in reality. The hand of the Lord was with them. The hand of the Lord. So, Mike, what do I do with this? Well, point number one really is this. Choose to be a Christian first. I'm a Republican. You better be a Christian Republican. I'm a Democrat. You better be a Christian Democrat. Your Christianity better be modifying your Republicanism. Your Christianity better be modifying your Democratism. You, your Christianity better be modifying if you're a Florida Gator fan. <laughs> I, I hate to have to say that. <laughs> but let the, let the uh, adjectival, miracle-working reality of your Christianity modify everything that you do. Choose to be more defined by the culture of heaven than, than of earth. Number two, 
What did, what did these guys do? I, I love what happens when, of course, they, they heard about what was happening, and so they sent Barnabas. And when he came to them in verse 23, it says, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. Jerusalem hears about what's going on in Antioch, and they're, they're not trying to micromanage, but they do need to manage. You don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. So they send out Barnabas, who's described as an apostle. Barnabas, they, they send out an apostolic person with authority to go check out and inspect what's taking place. When he goes, he, he, he gets there and he's seeing this. And, and by the way, I, I do want us to, to recognize that there's something beautiful about that, that they were checking things. They were exercising discernment. I, I, and by the way, let me just say this real fast. We need more discernment happening in the church right now. Everything that people say is God is not God. It has to line up with the word of God. When people tell you, yeah, we've got, it's like this new revelation. I believe that God speaks to people. I believe God illuminates. I believe God, but can I just tell you something? God has given us his word and the spirit of God is never going to contradict the word of God. This is so important, okay? This is so important because what's going to happen is when something other than God's word itself, that other than God himself becomes the authority, and that really is where we're at right now, which is in a world where people say, well, I'm going to, I don't like these parts of the Bible, so I'm going to do a little, you know, Benjamin Franklin kind of chop some things out, you know, and say, I don't believe that. Be, when, a, what is a Christian? A Christian is someone that acknowledges Jesus is the king, and the king calls the shots, not the subjects. I love him. I'm his son, but he's in charge. Well, I don't believe in the law of gravity. Does not change the law of gravity. I do not believe the wages of sin is death. Does not change the fact that the wages of sin is death. I don't believe what the Bible says about sexuality. That does not change God's law on sexuality. I don't believe what God's word says about justice. Does not change God's word on, on justice. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The fear of the Lord is, the commandments of the Lord, they're, they're clean, they endure forever. They make the simple wise, and they make a life come alive. So, so what did he do, though? When, when he shows up, he goes out, and when Barnabas comes, it says, when he saw the grace of God, he was glad. I want you to notice, he was on the lookout for grace. The second thing that these early Christians did is if the first one was their identity was really based on its Christian first, he went on the lookout. They were, not, they were on the lookout for grace. Years ago, there was a religious summit that was taking place where they were talking through all these different religions, and this is when C.S. Lewis was alive, and, and C.S. Lewis walked up, and there had been a, a debate going on for several hours on the distinction between Christianity and other religions. Is there any distinction? Is there anything different about Christianity compared to other religions. And they, they walked up, they said, ah, and they were kind of wrestling, and when he walked up, they said, well, let's ask you know, Lewis. And they said, is there any difference? He said, well, that's easy. It's grace. And then he just walked away. Every other religious system, other than true Christianity, not distorted Christianity, true Christianity, is some version of of karma. You, you, you get what you deserve. You know, it's, it's just deserts. It's, you reap what you sow. Of course, there's truth in that. But the message of Christianity is a message of grace. Karma does not change you. Grace does. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. It saved a wretch like me. 
No one ever said, amazing karma. No one, no one would say that, like, oh, yes, I'm getting what I deserve. Do you want what you deserve? Only the fool wants what he deserves. Only fools would, would want such a thing because God doesn't just judge on what's on the outside. He actually judges what's on the inside, which is why the grace of God, grace changes you. Like there's this verse in Titus 2. It says that the grace of God has appeared. Now, I want to get real clear. Can you put that up there, the, um, Titus 2, 11 and 12? Because it says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. So there, there's a false grace. This is the real grace. And then verse 12, put that up there. It says, teaching us, God's grace teaches us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should be, live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So grace is, I want to be careful, grace is similar to mercy. You know, mercy is where you don't get what you deserve. Like, oh man, you deserve to get slapped in the face. We didn't slap you in the face. That's mercy, right? That is not the same thing as grace. Technically, the word grace, it means a, a gift. It's a, it's a favor. It's an undeserved, unmerited idea. It's, you know, God's riches at Christ's expense is the little thing that people use sometimes. But what I want you to see, the effect of grace is that the effect of grace is, you know, and put it back up there again, verse 12, it teaches grace, you're like, what? Oh my gosh, like, I'm unworthy and you've made me your son. I don't deserve this and you've forgiven my sins. I don't deserve this and you put your spirit inside of me. I don't deserve this and you've lifted me up. You, you've, I was made in your image, but that image was broken and now you're restoring that image. Grace, like Murray said earlier, it is amazing. And when grace gets a hold of you, it changes you. And what it does is you don't teach people to live godly by karma. You transform people to live godly by grace. When it says Barnabas went and he saw the grace of God, what it means is he saw these people's lives are being changed. They're just different. Racists are changing and sexually immoral people are changing and, and mean people, they're, they're changing and, and they're getting different and, and these ripples are, are, are doing their thing. To, listen, he went on the lookout for grace. Here, here's what I'm trying to say in the second point right now. You need to test things. You need to be discerning. Don't believe everything that you hear. You got to line things up with God's word, but be on the lookout for the grace of God in people's lives. Be on the lookout for grace. Sometimes I think many Christians that I've met have rightfully been accused of they're not on the lookout for grace, they're on the lookout for anti-grace. In church, we need to be, of all the people in our culture, and by the way, liberals are very ungracious. Conservatives are very ungracious. Politically inclined people are often very ungracious. Religiously inclined people are very ungracious. Let me make it clear. Homo sapiens are very ungracious. I, I, it's always funny to me when they say the other side, the other side. It's all of us. It's all of us. It's me. It's you. But by the grace of God, he teaches us to live soberly and righteously. He changes us to where we stop judging people. You cannot judge others when you know that you need the same grace. Well, I'm a little less bad than them. Merry Christmas. Congratulations, does anyone else besides me stand condemned without the grace of God? Like, I am dead. I mean, just, just call me dead meat. You want a label for me? Just call me dead meat without the grace of God. But we have the grace of God. See, number one, choose to be defined by the culture of heaven, not earth. Number two, they, they went on the lookout. 
They went on the lookout for grace. But number three, I want you to see right here in verse 23. When he saw the grace, he was glad. And he encouraged them all that with purpose of heart, they should continue with the Lord. Barnabas, he embraced a life of encouragement. I, I just, I got to say this. I believe the early Christians, part of why they were called Christians, was because I believe they were an encouraging people. That when you were lacking courage, you got around them, and they put courage in. That's what happens when you are encouraged. They would see things in you. We already know this happened with Barnabas, by the way, because with Barnabas, it was Acts chapter 4. That's where all this started. Acts chapter 4, verse 36. It says, Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated the son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus. Like when, they, when they're telling the story, like we're calling them, by Acts 11, he is, this guy Barnabas, his name was Joseph. His name was Joseph. And, and he comes and the disciples, they watched the effect of him. And they're like, wait a minute, you... Uh, what, what's your name? And they said, Joe, he said, Joseph. What's your name? This guy, that's Joe. That's Joe. And then the, the apostles are like, everywhere this man goes, people get encouraged. Everywhere this man goes, there's this prophetic putting courage into people. He calls things out of people. And by the way, I want to get real clear about something. You do not condemn people into transformation. You encourage them into transformation. Never did a child like rise to occasion when you're like, man, I'm just not sure that you have what it takes. Okay, Dad, let's do it. They saw, they kept hearing him. And they're like, Bar was the word for son, like Bar, that'd be son. Barnabas was like son of encouragement. They're like, he's like, my name's Joe. They're like, no, dude, you're not Joe. Put it up there. Can you see it? Can you get close enough to see that? Are you able to get in there? I love you. You love me. We're a happy family. His name was Barney. They're like, your name is Barnabas. I, I know your parents called you Joe, but, but we're calling you. God has gotten a hold of you in such a way that only a new name even works to describe the culture that you embody. This is the message of Acts 11. I know you guys call yourselves disciples. We got to give you a new name because lots of people are called disciples. You guys resemble so closely. It's like you walk in the dust of this rabbi, Yeshua HaMashiach. You guys walk in the dust of the Christ. The only appropriate name for you is Christian. We need to give you a new label. Because the word disciple doesn't quite, na- like, ooh, you're learner, apprentice. No, it's more than that. She's a Jesus mom. He's a, a Jesus college student. That's a, that's a Jesus flowing grandpa over there. That's, that, that's, a, that's a Jesus lover, Jesus producer, Jesus pointer, Jesus. This, he, in, he embraced a life of encouragement, and it says, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Guys, I'm telling you, if, if we could go encourage this world, has there ever been a more discouraging time in culture than right now? Has there ever been a better blue ocean moment for the church of Jesus Christ to go do our thing 
than in this discouraged, discouraging, downcast world. This is our shot. You guys see these, put some of those images from the web, like these web images. Would you put those up there? Have you guys seen this? These, like the, the deepest, furthest images, they're finding these from outer space, you know, like, oh, I mean, those, that, that stuff was like, you know, so long ago that this was even, you know, going, and these beautiful, glo- and I don't know if any of you have, like, kind of looked in the news at these images when they're, you know, they're having these, these web scopes coming back, and it's kind of humbling, like, I mean, God, God is there. God made all of, all the stuff that the scientists are like, look at this, all of that stuff. And yet, that's not the image that does something to me. It's the God that did all of that. And would you put that, that last image up there? He came down on a cross for you and me. What does it tell you that that the scientists are in awe at the work of his hands and the magnitude of his created order? And yet he shrunk himself down to go up on a tree to make it clear what Murray Brown said earlier. He loves you that much. The one who made all of that wants to be your daddy, wants to be your Abba. Is there anything more encouraging than the gospel of Jesus Christ? I was reading about Howard Thurman, and he was, he was just, you know, influenced Martin Luther King greatly, but he, his grandmother was a slave, and she said that every Sunday there was two church services. One was put on by the slave masters where they would chop out parts of the Bible so that they... Slaves would not read the whole Bible, but the other was what they called an invisible institution. It was the invisible church. And it, they would go and they would worship God unrestrained for hours. But at the end, they said they would always end the same way. They would say, I just need you all to know you're not a slave. You're a child of God. Is there anything more encouraging than the message that is true? That what, what God says about you. And that's why when it says here in Acts 11, when we get to the end of this, it says, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. In other words, he heard about this guy Saul, and he's like, wait, I know this guy. And by the way, there's a lot of name changing going on here. Joseph becomes Barnabas. Disciples become Christians. There's this guy Saul. Guess who Saul is going to become? He's going to become Paul. But something goes off in Barnabas' mind. When Barnabas goes to the church in Antioch, please don't miss this. When Barnabas goes to the church in Antioch, he's like, wait a minute. If I could get Saul to that church, I know he saw the church in Jerusalem. That's not going to do it. I know he saw the church in some of these other places. That's not. If he could get to the church in Antioch, that dude, that brother will turn the world upside down. And that's what happened. And guys, this is what I dreamed for Greenhouse I dream for us to be the kind of people that when we meet people, we're like, man, if, if he could get with, with us whose names have been changed, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called, not orphans, but children of God. If, if we could get to that place, like that's my dream is that we would become like that. That is my dream. If I could get Saul to that church, he would come and he would change this world. 
And I don't know where you're at right now. If God is calling you to be part of Greenhouse, I'm humbly asking you to be a part of having us be Christians again. That we're most defined by Jesus. It's, it's Christian first. It's Christian modifying everything else because he's the king. That everywhere we go, we are on the lookout for the grace of God. Not cheap grace, not false grace. The kind of grace that amazes your heart and changes you. You don't sleep with people you're not married to anymore. You share your stuff with people that don't even deserve it. You give people mercy even when they're undeserving of You reconcile with people to the best of your ability. But then we embrace this life of encouragement that when many of you come to Splash Sunday today, that, that you just encourage people. That when you get in the lobby, you encourage people. That when you go out to preach the gospel, that you encourage people. I often like to think of, I love Barnabas' story, but I think he points to the greatest Barnabas of all, which was Jesus. Jesus goes up on a cross where he gets called, he gets a label given to him. He was called the friend of sinners. Jesus becomes the friend of sinners and he goes up on a cross where he takes our label on him, friend of sinners, where he goes and pays the price for our sins. Dies a cruel death where he pays for our sins. A literal physical death. And then he literally physically rises from the dead on Sunday after the Friday. And anyone that believes in him, they start to change. But here's the catch. Sometimes I'm I'm hesitant to like be fully Christian in the public sphere because sometimes I'm I'm ashamed of his name. But I have to remind myself, wait a minute. You were not ashamed of my name when you went up on the cross. He, He took my label on him on that cross. And that's what gives me the fuel to take my label, his label, upon me. I'm praying this sermon has touched your heart. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this sermon, be sure to click that like button. It helps others to find our videos. You can also post a comment about your favorite part of the message. Another way to connect is by subscribing to our YouTube channel. I hope you have a wonderful week. Live green.